As we do every Sunday, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5 this week. John chapter 5. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we have red ones hopefully nearby you. You can pull it out. And uh, I think it's somewhere in the 700s. John chapter 5. This week we're going to look at verses 16 through 47. And we're in a series called Encountering Christ. You've probably been looking up here at the banners if you've been here with us. And again, I just appreciate our artists and things are beginning to unfold here. Um, One of the things that I hope you'll see in this passage today is that Jesus, as we saw last week, is going to be in trouble with the religious leaders because he healed somebody, a man by the pool, on the Sabbath. And uh, some of us, again, because we don't have Sabbath laws and all those kind of things today, this is kind of an adjustment for us to understand exactly what was going on. But what Jesus had to do is Jesus had to shoulder all kinds of persecution, criticism, hatred. And if you're following along in the notes, what I hope you see today is that the Jewish leaders hate and want to kill Jesus for two reasons. The Jewish leaders hate and want to kill Jesus for two reasons. In our passage today, we're going to keep seeing this phrase, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. And I want to make sure I say something as a church family, in case you don't already know this. Uh, This is referring to a group of people but it's not trying to say all Jews. It's referring to the religious leaders. And sometimes Christians have actually taken passages from the Bible and actually supported anti-Semitism. That's not our spirit. When we're reading through this, I want you to, in your mind, remember that not all Jews hated and wanted to kill Jesus. That there were some religious leaders that did. And even among the religious leaders, there were some that did not. So let's make sure, again, that we are careful about how we think about these things when we read through them. But the Jewish leaders, we're going to study them for the first time in these encounters that we've been going through. This will be one of two or three encounters that they're going to have with Jesus that we're going to study. So that's why we call this week part one. But here we're going to see the Jewish leaders hate and want to kill Jesus for two reasons. What are those two reasons? Would you read verse 18 in that first gray box with me out loud? And we'll see what the answer is to that. Let's read it together. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now in my notes, I put one by breaking the Sabbath and two by making himself equal with God. These are the two reasons that they are concerned. And the idea of the verb tense here is that he was continually breaking the Sabbath. He was also continuing to make himself equal with God, and this just set them on tilt. Now, I want to make sure I clarify, Jesus was not breaking the commandment of the Ten Commandments about the Sabbath. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. He was breaking their man-made traditions and rules of how they interpreted obeying that. So last week we saw that when he instructed the man to pick up his mat and walk, he was not breaking the Sabbath or telling the man to break the Sabbath. There was nothing wrong with carrying a mat after you'd been miraculously healed after 38 years. In fact, it actually was kind of appropriate. But what they got into was they wanted to say, technically, that's work, because they had 39 different categories of interpretation of the Sabbath alone, as Steve told us a few months back. This is crazy business, and they were into that. And they got so technical, they couldn't even rejoice when someone got set free on the Sabbath. And so now Jesus is in hot water. And so they have this hatred and want to kill him. And in our life group this last week, 
we were talking about the fact, what is the big deal? I mean, so you break some of your man-made traditions and things like that. But see, when he claimed to be equal with God, and some people, I still to this day encounter people that say, Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. And I, all I want to do is just ask him if they'll study the Gospel of John, because we're going to see this a lot. In fact, starting in a couple weeks, we're going to see one of seven major claims Jesus does to equate himself with God. We're going to also see some today. And I just want you to see that sometimes when people say that, it's just, it's just based on ignorance of the Bible, or they believe, in some cases, that these human beings put those words into Jesus' mouth. He never said that. They just wanted him to say that. And I think you'll see that. It wasn't to Jesus' advantage to say these things. I mean, he, he, he's going to get killed because of that. But the other thing is that uh, I want you to see that in our life group, we talked about the fact that one of the other reasons they wanted to hate and kill him is because he took away their power. See, they were the religious leaders that everyone turned to. Jesus shows up on the scene, and, the, and Pilate even noticed this. He says he knew it was out of envy that they turned Jesus over to him. So there's a lot of things in play. I just want you to be aware of that. Jesus is trying to speak into an atmosphere that's toxic and infected. And watch the way how he shoulders these criticisms. Watch the way he shoulders this kind of hatred, persecution. It's incredible what we're going to see today. But I hope you'll also see that, if you're following along, is that Jesus answers them. He answers them. That's what we're going to study in this large section of verses today. And then he reveals why they oppose him. Jesus answers them and then reveals why they're actually opposing him. You see, the question is, is were they opposing him because they were ignorant? They just didn't know? They needed more information? Or were they opposing him because it didn't matter how much information he gave them? They weren't interested. And they didn't want to know. In our house, I had a situation where I had to walk through this being exposed in my own life. Um, we have a gas fireplace, and uh, before we moved into the house, the owners evidently had converted it from a wood-burning fireplace to a gas fireplace. So for the last 17 years, we've had this, and um, in the last year especially, since uh, I put in a different gas fireplace, my wife has said to me, I smell gas, natural gas. Just making sure. <laughs> and she said, I smell, I just, something's not right. Well, my family would come over and visit, and they'd go, and I'd always go, no, it's not, it's not natural gas. This is just the musty smell of our fireplace and stuff like that. And uh, so my wife kept saying, I, I think it's natural gas. And I, I just was resolute. I refused to accept her proposition. So finally, one day, she just called one of the CWLP workers or whatever, <laughs> came out. And shock of all shocks, guess what he said? There's some natural gas leak in your house. Now, fortunately, we've been lighting candles all winter long. <laughs> and by refusing, I put us in a bad place. And refusing is choosing. I chose. I chose. It didn't matter what other people said, even people that knew more than I did. I knew better. Refusing is choosing, and refusing can be deadly. And so we're going to look at that today. As we think about these religious leaders, 
as we think about how does this affect us, here's what I want you to understand, friends. Here's why we need this message today. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then the ramifications are enormous. The ramifications, if Jesus is who he claims to be, the ramifications are eternal life or eternal death. That's huge. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I want to just warn you up front, these verses, we're going to read two large sections of scripture. And so you're going to be tempted, like, you know, it's easy to do. It's kind of like check out halfway through. And I just would ask, just try and and follow along. We're going to walk through and I'm going to try and give you an overview of this after we do that. But let's look again this morning and see how Jesus claims to be equal with God. And then one of the big ideas that comes up in verse 40 is what I'm going to help us look at, this idea of refusing. And then we're going to see what we can learn from this encounter. Will you pray with me? Jesus, it's awfully important that you be the teacher today. I tend to err on the wrong side of grace and truth. I just would pray that you'll help us encounter you. Because there's something about encountering you that can make all the difference. And that's what we ask for. We pray that we'll be responsive and teachable and not like I was with the gas fireplace. In your name, amen. Okay, let me read verses 16 through 30. And we're going to unpack this. And I want you to see that Jesus is answering, answering their um, protest. And the word for answer here has a legal overtone to it. So in a way, it's kind of like they're putting him on trial. We're saying, we don't believe you. We think you're just a human being. What in the world are you doing talking like this? And so watch to see the spirit in which Jesus answers them. It's a powerful picture for us when we have people that are opposing us or angry with us. But here we go, verse 16 and following. So, because Jesus was doing these things, what things? Healing a man by the pool on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let me just say something. Uh, The Jewish leaders, the Jewish people in those days had so much reverence and respect for God that in public places sometimes, or when they were referring to God, sometimes they would say, our father, but they would never, ever, ever say, my father. That was too intimate, too familiar making God a little bit too chummy in their mind. And so they guarded against that. And Jesus walks on the scene, and he's saying, my father left and right. But he's not saying it carelessly. And you'll notice again that he refers to father repeatedly in this section. I hope you'll notice that. And so he goes on. Um, Jesus gave them this answer, verse 19. I tell you the truth. The son, he's referring to himself, can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
He who does not honor the the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, verse 24 is power-packed. Especially note what we say here. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him, talking about the Father who sent me, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. Notice how many times Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth. He's underscoring how true this is. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's talking about people who are spiritually dead like you and I have been. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. As we saw a few weeks ago uh, during the Palm Sunday message, the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's definitely a reference to the Messiah. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Saying that it's going to affect all the cemeteries in the world. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. That is a mouthful. So what do we understand in these verses? What is he saying? Well, if you're looking at the first two lines in this section, I want, you to, I want to kind of condense what we just read. First, as the Son of God, Jesus is saying, I give life and raise the dead. As the Son of God, I give life and raise the dead, Jesus is saying. Again, if, you're, if you're, somebody at work started talking like this to you, you would go... What are they doing? This would be just so hard for us to make the jump from a human being talking like this, if this is all Jesus is. Jesus is saying, I'm not just a human being. Do you know who I am? I give life and raise the dead just like my father. And in the United States, sometimes we struggle with this whole father-son thing because we tend to think in hierarchical ways. But in the Middle East, father and son were not viewed that way. The firstborn son was not only the heir to all of the the inheritance, but also they shared in authority and responsibility. And so whenever it says father and son, the idea of being equal was very much there. And that's why people are so disturbed by this, because Jesus is saying, the father and I are equal. Later in John chapter 10, verse 30, he's going to say, the father and I are one. People are going to go, what is going on? But the Son of God was not uh, a lesser thing. And when he says that I submit to my Father and I do whatever he wants me to do, he's not saying it's because he has less authority, he's less equal. Nowadays, we think that if someone serves or submits to someone, it makes them less. Makes them less equal. It's not true. It can actually be two people that learn how to do oneness well. And Jesus is saying that the Son of God, as the Son of God, I give life and raise the dead. There's this now and not yet feature. And as you've seen, he says that there's going to come a time and has now come when people will hear his voice that are dead and they will live. And he said there's also a time that's coming when people in their graves will hear his voice and come out in such a way that they too will live. What's he talking about? He's talking about both spiritual death and physical death. Now again, I don't know how much you think about these things, but this week as I was reading about spiritual death, This really touched me. Ray Steadman said this, 
Jesus regularly deals with spiritual death. People who never think about the fact they are ultimately and eternally accountable to God are spiritually dead. People who do not believe in the invisible realities of life but deal only with the material and the visible are spiritually dead. People who believe with their existence is bounded only by the womb and the tomb are spiritually dead. They are unresponsive to anything beyond what appeals to the body and the senses. That is spiritual death. Jesus has the power to give life to such people. And this is incredible. Jesus could speak to people, and people like Nicodemus, and even though they were spiritually dead, as religious as could be, but they were spiritually dead, when they began to encounter Jesus, they came alive. They began to be awakened. And this is powerful. And then he goes on to say, there's also coming a day when my voice will be so powerful that when I speak, every person that's ever lived will rise up to face judgment, but every person will. Now, this is an amazing thing. I don't know if you ever spend time in a cemetery. Uh, I go and study out in western Iowa several times a year. It's where I used to be pastor for six and a half years, and it's just, there's something about the farmland. There's something about what God taught me in those days many years ago that just helps me as I study. And so when I go for runs or when I go for a walk, I will, I will regularly spend at least an hour in the cemetery there in Harlan, Iowa, every time I go. And some of you are going, I'm concerned about him. <laughs> but why do I do that? Well, one, I remember walking up that hill with a number of people that I cared about and loved. And I sometimes just go and think about my friendships with them or what God did in the past. But I also go there because it helps me remember that my day is coming and what I do and how I do it. But here's the more amazing thing. That's just a small town of 5,000. Jesus says, there's coming a day where I'm going to empty that cemetery. And I'm going to empty every cemetery with my voice. Wow. This is enormous. This is huge. And if he's telling the truth, that means that that's going to affect your life and mine. And that leads to the second thing, if you're following along, that he says here. And that is, as the Son of Man, I have authority to judge. As the Son of Man, I have authority to judge. Have you ever seen this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10? I think about it fairly often. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Sometimes, when we get in discussions about Jesus and people want to relegate him just to another religious leader or moral teacher, I find myself realizing that Jesus never came to be admired. He never came to be complimented. He came to be surrendered to. He came to be the Lord. And there is no other equal that made the claims he did and backed them up like Jesus did. But on top of that, even if you and I decide to blow him off our whole earthly life, Jesus says, I do need to make sure you understand this. You will see me again. You will stand before me and give an account for your one and only life. I will be your judge, not anyone else. The Father and I are in this together. He's given me authority to be your judge. And that can be really, really crushing. Except that as you hear Jesus deliver these words, 
They are so filled with hope and so filled with love and so filled with appeal that he says, look, look, even though I'm going to be your judge someday, because of what I've come here to do here on earth by the cross and my resurrection and my teaching, I am going to make it possible for you not to be condemned, but to become spiritually alive and to live and to have life. But refusing is choosing, and be careful how you respond to what I'm saying, Jesus is saying. I was thinking that when we read the words that some will rise that have done good, and that some will rise that have done bad, and they'll go two separate ways. This isn't popular today. Most of us want to push it away because we have loved ones and friends and people that are affected by this kind of stuff. But when we think about this, what I hope you see is that when Jesus means good or bad, good or evil, most of us like to come up with our own definition or our own standard of what that is. Here's just a simple way to understand it. Good means to receive eternal life from him. Evil means to refuse eternal life from him when it's offered. That's what's going to be the separating factor. And so Jesus says these things, and again, these leaders, like we would have been if we had been there, go, who are you? Where do you come off saying these things? These are huge. Really? Jesus says, okay, I know it's huge. So now let me call five witnesses that will back up what I'm saying. And you can check these witnesses out and see if they're not rock solid and corroborate what I say. And so in the next verses, 31 through 47, again, another long section, he gives five witnesses. And I'm going to read through the section, and then I'm going to, again, piece together what he says. Verse 31. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. He's not saying it's untrue. He's saying nobody can just stand up and make a claim and everybody go, okay, well, he said it, it must be true. No, in the Old Testament, it says, don't accept anybody's testimony except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Because you know, you've seen it. People can make up stuff. People can walk in and say things. And so Jesus says, look, don't just take it because I say it. My testimony by itself is not valid. Verse 32, there is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. Who's he referring to? We'll come back to that. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Let me just stop for a second. I mentioned this at the beginning, but I know some of you have joined us since. And some of you are still getting used to your Bibles, so this may be a little confusing. Who's the John he's referring to? He's not referring to author John. He's referring to John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Okay? Because, as we saw the first week, John, out of humility, never names himself in this gospel. If you read about John, he uses this device where he refers to himself as the disciple, the other disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's his favorite phrase, which doesn't mean nah, 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 nah. It means I'm loved, even though I don't deserve to be loved. What an incredible Savior. So that's how he refers to himself. So now when he says John, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, okay? You have sent to John and has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be, what, friends? Saved. I'm trying to do all I can so that you don't have to face the consequences of refusing me. Then it says, verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, 
and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Notice he says John the Baptist is not the light, he's a lamp. You know what a lamp is? A lamp works on borrowed light. It's not the source of it. That's why you and I can be lamps with the light of God. And John the Baptist was a faithful lamp. Verse 36, I have a testimony, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, and we saw this on Good Friday, the work he is going to be able to say, it is finished. Is it on the cross? He rescued us from wrath. He paid our debt and ransom, and he opened the way to God. That's why he could say it is finished. And he says this, the works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Now would you read verse 39 and 40 out loud? It's listed in that second gray box. Let's do it together. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Verse 41, I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Verse 45, But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? First witness I call to the stand, John the Baptist, if you're following along. He says, John the Baptist's testimony about me should be a clue when you're trying to piece together who I am and what I'm supposed to mean in your life. John the Baptist's testimony. And some of you have been here for these messages and you've heard us talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, I've listed out to the right in the parentheses there, the things that John the Baptist said about Jesus. You can study that more on your own. But what I hope you'll see this morning in brief is that John the Baptist made very specific claims regarding Jesus. He announced that Jesus was the predicted Messiah of whom the Old Testament prophets had written. He announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John announced that Jesus was the one who would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And he announced that Jesus is the Son of God. And because of that, people had a chance to go, oh, okay, that helps. Jesus said, second testimony I want you to think about is the work I do. In some cases, it might be in your Bible translations, the works I do. And Jesus said that there's a work that I'm doing here on earth. And the work that I'm doing, I want you to understand, are the miracles that you've been seeing me do, John calls them miraculous signs, again, to point us to Jesus. But he also talks about how his teaching and his whole way with people is the work that God gave him to do here on earth. And Jesus says, even if you don't like what I'm saying to you, what do you do with that miraculous sign of me healing that guy after 38 years? Do you have anybody else that's doing that in your group? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? 
And you know, Nicodemus, when he came by night to see Jesus, he said in John chapter 3, no one could do the things you're doing or say the things you're saying if God was not with him. There's something about you. And he was piecing it together. Third thing is, is God the Father, another testifies. Back in verse 32 when he says, there's another that testifies me besides just my own testimony. And you wonder who that was. Well, it's not John the Baptist. He's referring to God the Father, verse 37. And he's saying, God the Father has testified to me. Now, I've listed out to the right the times that God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism in an audible voice. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, at his transfiguration. Even though Elijah and Moses showed up at the transfiguration when Jesus' clothes became as bright as lightning, when they were gone, Father said, this is my son, listen to him. And Jesus says, the father has testified about me both verbally and in other ways. Listen to him. The fourth testimony is the scriptures testify about me. And obviously he means at this point, before the New Testament was even written, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. And many of us go, no way. I mean, the New Testament makes complete sense. I see how it testifies about Jesus completely. But you're talking about the Old Testament? All those different pages that I try and read through every year, they testify about Jesus? Jesus says they do. And here's an interesting verse if you've never seen it. On the day he rose again, he came incognito on a road and met two people on the road to Emmaus. And it says this in Luke chapter 24. Look at what it says. They were all confused about why Jesus had to die. And he said, did not the Christ have to suffer? And then it says this, in beginning with Moses... That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And eventually they would testify, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened up the scripture to us on the road? And some of you say, well, like what Old Testament scriptures? Well, I've listed out to the right one that we saw with Nicodemus. You'll see John 3, verse 14 and 15. Nicodemus was saying, like, what do you mean, like, I need to be born again? What, how come it's all about you? And Jesus said, just as Moses took a bronze snake in the wilderness and lifted it up on a pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross so that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus was saying, that's Numbers 21, verse 9, in case you're checking, being fulfilled. Now, some of you say, I want to know more about this. Well, if you go on our website to the archives, on Easter of 2011, last year, I spoke on this whole subject, and you say, I'm not sure I can handle or persevere through your whole message. Yet. Here's the deal. Go to the message notes and print out the PDF, because on the back of those message notes, I list all those passages that Jesus may have been referring to that day, and you can check them out. It's not exhaustive, but it's a lot of them, Okay. Now, that's just one more thing about the scriptures, but here's the deal. That means that these guys were Bible experts. Do you know that they had the entire Old Testament, many of them, memorized? That's this much of the Bible, word for word memorized. They knew it backwards and forwards. They, they knew how many verses there were in each book. They knew how many, all that stuff. And, and Jesus says, all your efforts to learn the scriptures should have pointed you to me, but you've been wasting your time and your life because you thought the scriptures were about something else. This is a danger for me growing up as a preacher's kid. Oh man, I've had the privilege 
to know so much Bible. But you can know all that stuff and it just be head knowledge. That's what I found out. Just stories to repeat backwards and forwards, verses, rules. I didn't see the heart of the scripture until 15 years old. I finally said, you're going to have to open up the meaning of this book to me. And by his grace, a month later, he did. And it has been the ride of my life to meet Jesus in the scriptures. Maybe an illustration will help. Some of you have been to the tallest building in Chicago called the Sears Tower. Sears Tower has an observation deck. And there on the observation deck, you can see unbelievable sights. You can look out over Lake Michigan and all its massiveness. And you can see other buildings and neighborhoods and cities and stuff like that. But suppose you and I decided to go to the Sears Tower together. And I said, hey, let's go. And we go up to the observation deck. And while we get to the top, I immediately go, oh, my goodness. Look at the quality of that glass. Look at the metal around those windows. Oh, I've got to learn more about this. Some of you go, are you crazy? The window is there for a reason to help you appreciate what's beyond the window. And you're missing it because you're caught up with all this right here. Look beyond to Christ. And Jesus is saying, the scriptures point to me if it's in your heart to understand. I can open your mind to understand that. The last one comes out of the same idea. And this really turns the whole conversation. He says, Moses testifies and he wrote about me. Now, again, look at Deuteronomy 18, because this is what he's referring to. This is what Moses said hundreds of years before. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own people. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them, God says, a prophet like you from among their people, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. And everybody knew the prophet was going to come. Moses had forecast. So remember, these guys are crazy about Moses. He's their hero. He says, look, did you miss that? You're standing in front of the prophet. And you better be careful how you listen. Because even Moses said that. And he uses this incredible line. He says, on that day, when you stand before God to be judged, I won't even have to say a word. Moses will accuse you because you didn't listen to him. He wrote about me. He wrote about me, and you weren't listening. Now, some of us could say, well, I think Jesus pretty accurately exposed their ignorance problem. But Jesus doesn't say it's an ignorance problem. He says, you guys are smart. You guys have had the Bible. You know more. You've had more privileges spiritually than most people. But I I know you. I can see into your hearts, and here's what the problem is. And I'm not telling you this just to be right. I'm telling you this because there's still time to change. You refuse to come to me to have life. And refusing is choosing, and refusing can be deadly. Come on. And so this week, I was just gripped by this idea of refusing. A couple months ago, Trish and I had the chance to go over to Indiana and worship with our middle son and our daughter, 
at the church that he goes at in this thriving metropolis of Upland, Indiana. And the pastor of the church there at Upland Community Church used to be a veterinarian. And so that day, I was thrilled because he was preaching on John 5. And I thought, as a pastor, this is going to help me. (laughs) But he told a story that day that I've never been able to forget. He said, as a veterinarian, some people brought in a cat one day. And as he was inspecting the cat, he saw a tumor on this cat the size of a pinhead. And the minute he saw it, he recognized what kind of carcinoma it was. And he knew that undetected, unaddressed, it would kill the cat. So he said to the owners, do you see this right here? This is deadly if we don't do something about it. They said, nah, it's nothing. And they blew him off. Came back a few months later for a normal checkup, and he said, now the tumor was the size of a pencil eraser. Tried to talk to him again. He said, you know, we don't, we don't want to hear it. He said they brought him back the next time. By this time, the cat was in quite a bit of pain because the tumor was the size of a golf ball. And it was too late. And they refused to listen. And he says, sometimes that's what we do with Jesus. We don't want to hear what he has to say. We would rather refuse and choose. And because of that, we think it's helping us. But in the long run, it's not helping at all. So Jesus says, let me tell you what's behind your refusing. And I've listed a couple questions that unpack this a little bit. And I need your help on the first question there. Is I left out the word I. So if you could say, I, am I looking to anyone or anything other than Jesus for life? Where are you looking for life these days? Where do you think life is found? Is it a possession? Is it a person? Is it a position? Is it a privilege? Is it prestige? Am I looking to anyone or anything other than Jesus for life? Some of you know I had the privilege of hearing about Jesus from the time I was a little tot. But for years... I thought that someone else or something else could give me life instead of Jesus. And I had to come to the conclusion that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, I can give you life like no other. But I can't answer for you. Where are you at today? Some of us are already Christians, but we've gone back to looking to something or something else or someone for life. And Jesus says, don't do that. Refuse to believe that that can give you life. The second question is, do I care about people's praise more than God's? Do I care about people's praise more than God's? In my notes, I actually use those two blanks to write the phrase human approval as well. Do I care more about human approval more than God's? Look at this passage from John chapter 12. We'll eventually study this. Many people did believe in Jesus, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, But they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Jesus says, how can you guys be so caught up with getting praise from each other that you don't care about the praise that can only come from the one God? 
What do you want in life, Jesus is saying. I'm pleading with you. I'm appealing to you. I'm shouldering your anger towards me, and I'm pointing it back at you. You're on trial, not me. What you do with me and the life I offer you is the issue here. And you're actually selling out because you care more about what people think of you than you care about what God thinks of you. And God wants you to have life. And now look at this passage here. He said this on another occasion, Matthew 10. Some of you will be able to relate to this. He says, stand up for me against world opinion and I'll stand up for you before my Father in heaven. If you turn tail and run, do you think I'll cover for you? Don't think I've come to make life cozy. I've come to cut, make a sharp knife cut between son and father, daughter and mother, bride and mother-in-law. Cut through these cozy domestic arrangements and free you for God. Well-meaning family members can be your worst enemies. If you prefer father or mother over me, you don't deserve me. If you prefer son or daughter over me, you don't deserve me. If you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, you don't deserve me. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. Wow. Jesus is saying, I want you to be clear. You can let a family relationship become more important to me and what they think of you. You can let your boss, you can let a classmate, you can let your neighbor, but be careful. Go for the praise of God, which will come to you as you trust in me and come to me. And so it leads us to wonder, what do we do? What do we do? Are we refusing? Are we refusing and choosing? Last night, I got the news, like some of you did, and I know some of you may not know who this man is, but I got the news that Chuck Colson had passed away at 80 years old. Now, for you, those of you who don't know, he was the founder of Prison Fellowship 35 years, or 30 years ago, um, and uh, he started this ministry to prisoners after he had gone to prison during the Watergate days because he had been Richard Nixon's special counsel. His office was right next to President Nixon's in the White House. And he had done some things that were wrong before he was a Christian. After he finished his time before Watergate convicted him, he didn't even know he was in trouble at that point. He went back to his law practice and he went to visit some of the people he had represented. And he ran into a man named Tom Phillips who was a very successful CEO of the most powerful company in the East at that time, in the Northeast. And when he was spending time with Tom, he noticed there was something different about Tom. And he said, Tom, something's different about you. What's happened? He says, I have changed. I've met Jesus Christ and I've surrendered my life to him and it's changed everything for me. Chuck Colson said, I'd never heard people talk like that before. I had no idea what he meant. But for the next three months, I thought about this all the time. Eventually came back to him and said, like, what do you mean about this surrender to Jesus Christ and give your life to him? And he said, well, let me read something to you. And he took out a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He said, I want to read a chapter to you called The Great Sin. And it's an entire chapter about pride. And as he read, Chuck Colson felt like C.S. Lewis was talking directly to him. He left there, went out to his car, and he tried to drive home. And here, this former Marine and hatchet man from the White House could not control himself. He absolutely broke apart, weeping. He said, I pulled my car off to the side of the road. I don't know how long I cried. It could have been up to an hour, but I cried a long time, and I knew that Jesus 
was reaching out to me and that I needed to surrender my life to him. And it was something I could refuse, but I didn't want to refuse anymore. And that became the turning point. He went through prison. By spending time in prison, it opened up a ministry of the most shameful time in his life, became the greatest platform for God to do his greatest work. And today, we stand here knowing that last night, at a moment in time, he heard Jesus' voice. And instead of being condemned, he experienced in totality what it means to pass from death to life. Jesus did that. And Jesus can do that for you and me. So here's the question, if you're following along. Am I refusing? Or will I come to Jesus and believe into him? And believe into him. This week I was struck by that phrase, believe into him. When the Bible says believe in him, it means that beyond just believing in something else, believe into him so intimately that you become one with Jesus. That now your whole life is wrapped up. He shows you how to do all of life. Not just church on Sunday, but all of life, believing into him. So where are you at? Where are you at, friends? Who is Jesus to you? Not your neighbor? Not your family members? Who's Jesus to you? Do you believe in him? Have you put your trust in him? What are you doing with him? Are you coming to him? Are you trusting in him? And what we want to do is sing this closing song called In Christ Alone. In Christ Alone. And if you haven't yet trusted Christ, I pray you'll know whether you've been refusing and I hope that you will choose to believe in Christ alone so that you will not be condemned but you can experience this moment right now that you have passed from death to life.